This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu to purchase this book. The title of this book is Systematic Theology in Two Volumes by Rusas John Rushduni. Copyright 1994. Ross House Books. Volume 1. Chapter 1. Section 9. The Infallible Movement. One of the more interesting statements by Sartre is his declaration that for existentialism, quote, all human activities are equivalent, end quote, because there can be, for existentialism, no valid outside determination of man, and man must be freed from all influences of religion, society, family, and school, from past and future in order to have full freedom and sovereignty in the present moment. All things are equal because all things are equally meaningless. For existentialism, Sartre holds, quote, It amounts to the same thing whether one gets drunk alone or is a leader of nations, end quote. The only valid goal is to be truly free from all outside determination and to be fully self-conscious as an autonomous being. In terms of this goal, it is likely that, quote, It will be the quietism of the solitary drunkard which will take precedence over the vain agitation of the leaders of nations. End quote. The leader of nations will be influenced by people and events. The drunkard will be the better existentialist, because he will be influenced only by his own desire to drink. The existential moment is the present as lived by man when he divorces himself from the past, from men and society, and from all considerations of God and good and evil. Such a man having recognized his freedom, will be beyond good and evil ostensibly. He will live in the existential moment beyond judgment, because the existential moment is always infallible. What existential man wills and does is of necessity infallible, because no legitimate standard is held to exist which can judge man and declare any variations from his actions to be mandatory. The necessary act and the infallible act is what existential man does. Beyond him, there is by definition nothing. Existential man says in effect, I am the man-god, and beside me there is none else. The same applies to every thought and word of existential man. What existential man thinks and says is infallible because there is no standard, law, or God for him to rule that anything he thinks and says is not inerrant. The self-expression of existential man is thus an infallible expression. Infallible man speaks an infallible word which is also for him the only word in the universe. The moment is always infallible, and because existential man refuses to bow down to God, time, history, and society, he lives without reference to the past and future in an eternal now. God's eternity is beyond time. Existential man's eternity is the moment, the eternal now. Galami Apollinari barely twenty, wrote portions of a novel in which he had a character declare concerning the coming new man, quote, On my arrival on earth I found humanity on its last legs, devoted to fetishes, bigoted, barely capable of distinguishing good from evil, and I shall leave it intelligent, enlightened, regenerated, knowing there is neither good nor evil, nor God, nor devil, nor spirits, nor matter, in distinct separateness, end quote. The emphasis on the ultimacy of the moment has led to what Kenneth Keniston, 
has called the cult of the present. In this faith, the here and now is everything. Experience divorced from eternal standards of judgment, activity, and adventure for their own sake, and a heedlessness about the future mark this cult of the present. There is a search for total meaning in the present, but this total meaning eludes existential man. Drugs are very important to existential man, because drugs provide the nirvana of the moment. Attempts to suppress the drug traffic are failing, because narcotics represent too basic a need for moderns. They provide an escape from God and society, from reality, from past and future, and from time itself for existential man. Narcotics provide the illusion of an eternal now and feed the sense of infallibility, the sense of being a god. This quest, in the true spirit of existentialism, is both a searching for meaning and the desire for self-expression. However, as Keniston notes, quote, this is rarely a desire to remedy wrongs or to reform society, end quote. Sartre is not true to his ex existentialism in his social concern. He is closer to the leader of nations than to the drunkard. This search for the infallible moment by existential man is a failure. The denial of God's world of meaning means not a new meaning, but no meaning. Quote, Yet characteristically, a philosophy of absolute freedom, based on a denial of any necessary relationship with the past, is usually a philosophy of the absurd. The signs of this freedom are not joy and triumph, but nausea and dread, and its possessors are not the creators, but the strangers and outsiders of the universe. Few men, young or old, ordinary or extraordinary, can live contentedly, much less joyously, without some relationship to time other than total freedom. End quote. No man is able to make or be his own universe. The existentialist's infallible moment thus proves to be a step into hell. The goal of existentialist man is, quote, to have no other law but mine, end quote. This means rejecting God, man, and nature, because nature, as God's creation, has a thousand beaten paths, all leading up to God. The infallible moment is thus an illusion, but it is an illusion which is central to the life of modern man. It is a concept which has had widespread influence among supposed Christians. It is thus necessary to cut the ground out from under rival doctrines of infallibility in order to leave fallen men, both those outside the church and those within, without excuse. Moreover, we should remember that the charismatic movement, with its emphasis on revelations and experience, has in many cases deep inner links with existentialism. The periodic rise of charismatic movements in history is closely linked with the prevalence of the cult of the present. Section 10. Who Speaks the Word? As we have seen, the doctrine of infallibility is not restricted to the Bible. Man is in all his ways and in all his being the creature of God. Every category of his life and thought is determined and conditioned by that fact. Man is therefore God's covenant-keeping man, or, in a revolt, is a pretended God who seeks to reproduce God's being and life in his own person. Man will therefore, in his rebellion, seek to establish his independent word as the sufficient word. His autonomous word is said to be beyond good and evil, because his word establishes what is good and evil for himself, and for the moment only. Not even the word of existential man can bind him. In analyzing the question of the infallible word, we must recognize that, in essence, there are three possible answers to the basic question of the ultimate and necessary word. How do we know, and what is the source of authority? Who speaks the binding and infallible word, in brief? 
We can answer, first, that man alone speaks the word, second, that God and man are both capable of speaking the creative and ultimate word, or third, that God alone speaks creatively, authoritatively, and infallibly. The first view holds that man alone speaks the infallible word. There is said to be no God, or, if God exists, He is a God who remains outside of man's purview. He is not God over man and universe, and is an outsider to it. Man thus has no standard beyond himself. For an existentialist such as Sartre, God is by definition no problem to his philosophy, but other people are. How can men, each seeking to be a God, tolerate one another? In a world of rival gods, conflict is inescapable. Sartre offers intersubjectivity as the answer, but this possibility is not developed into anything other than a hope. Man, as God, speaking the infallible word, cannot speak the word of knowledge concerning creation, since he has no authoritative standard other than himself. He must have an exhaustive knowledge of all reality before he has any knowledge at all, because he has denied that reality has any God-given law and order in and over it. He must examine that reality totally before he can pronounce a word of knowledge concerning it. As a result, no knowledge is possible. Nietzsche, in declaring his independence from God, was forced thereby to deny all knowledge and the idea of truth. In the end, Nietzsche annihilated everything, including himself. Man became an island in a shoreless sea, hearing no voice but his own and committed to suicide. Since life itself could not be a criterion for Nietzsche, he had to reject the life force itself, finally as an alien standard and good. Suicide was thus his ultimate counsel. To deny God is ultimately to deny man, life, knowledge, and everything else. God is the only creator and sustainer of all things. When he is denied, everything is denied. The result is a world without meaning, only total negation. Few people have realized this more clearly than Karl Barth. As a thoroughly modern man, he was in principle opposed to the sovereign God of Scripture, who alone speaks authoritatively and creatively, and whose every word is therefore an infallible and inerrant word. Barth belonged to the world of Descartes. For him, the God of Scripture was anathema. On the other hand, Barth was horrified by the abyss opened by Nietzsche, or more accurately, by Feuerbach, and the whole tradition of modern thought. When man alone speaks, then man is doomed. The world of suicide opens up, and the apocalypse of modern man in a worldwide conflict Barth wanted neither God alone nor man alone, neither the word of God nor the word of man. Barth's hope was for something in between, something which would give man his Cartesian freedom and autonomy to speak the authoritative word in the name of God. God would thus provide the insurance policy to undergird man's word. For Barth, therefore, God is very important, not in himself, but as a foundation for man's freedom. God is for Barth a limiting concept not the sovereign and omnipotent being. The result was the second possible answer, for example, that God and man are both creative, and both speak creatively in Scripture. The word of God is here in the Bible, but it is a hidden, subjective word, appearing only in the divine human encounter. It is not God in himself that interests Barth. If such a God exists, he is unknowable. He is not a matter for belief or unbelief. He is not our concern. Only a relational concept of God exists in Barth, a God whose function is to underwrite man. The liberal theologian Wingreen is right, quote, In Barth's theology, man is the obvious center, 
question about man's knowledge is the axis around which the whole subject matter moves, end quote. He adds that this is very plainly manifested in what Barth has to say about God's law. Barth's concern was not salvation. He was too much a universalist for that. His concern was with saving the possibility of knowledge. His man is modern man, man in epistemological crisis, not biblical man. Barth's man is without a biblical doctrine of sin. Rather, he is modern man, who has a problem establishing how he can know, and who has a desire for knowledge without responsibility. The Bible for Barth is simply a means whereby man can establish his own word in the name of God. It is not the infallible word of the God whose law is binding upon man. It is man's word for Barth which must be spoken and must be heard. But, as Wingren notes, quote, Man without means of contact with God is not the kind of man described in the biblical writings. This man without means of contact with God is the modern, atheistic man for whom the question of knowledge is the one essential question whenever the conception of God is discussed. End quote. For Barth, sin is the impossible possibility, a notion which makes formal use of the doctrine of sin but preserves man in his autonomy and freedom. Man and God have one being for Barth. Man's fall thus is not from something ordained by the absolute God, but for himself. Salvation is not new life, but new knowledge and it is in essence a rise in the scale of being. Barth's language is one of encounter and correspondence, not atonement and salvation. Rudolf Boltmann tried also to preserve man from the abyss of self-deification. His answer was to demythologize scripture, to gain the true word. He began by declaring that the scientific worldview must be strictly accepted. Anything which purports to come from the eternal realm is strictly mythological. By demythologizing scripture, we can then recognize that realized eschatology is its true message. Man's religious quest must not be directed to a fixed point outside himself, but to himself and his own awareness and certainty. As Wingren comments, quote, In regard to the concept of guilt, we have established that a peculiar egocentricity dominates Boltman's thinking on this point. This is due to the influence of Heidegger, Guilt is lack of self-realization, just as salvation is self-realization. Human life, Dazien, has fallen, but it has fallen exclusively from itself. When man searches and chooses among the possibilities which meet him in the hour of decision, he is seeking his own existence. End quote. Where does God come into the picture for Boltman? The modern worldview of science prevails. The supernatural and the beyond are ruled out and man is autonomous, his only hope being himself. Having done this, Boltman appeals to security in the unseen beyond in God. But this is the very God he has ruled out. Boltman then turns on science and technology as the true demons who give man a false sense of security, when man's true state should be no security whatsoever. Like Tillich, he affirms as the Protestant principle a perpetual insecurity, for example, a perpetual anxiety neurosis, and a St. Vitus dance in no man's land. Boltman does not want the God of Scripture, nor his infallible world. He demythologizes it in order to strip God of all authority. It is man's word which he upholds. But, like Barth, he sees suicide inherent in man's word, so he then demythologizes man. How do we then have knowledge? Man's word is undermined to a degree, and God's word radically so. Our knowledge, which, as for Barth, is our justification, 
comes by demythologizing. As Boltzmann wrote, quote, Indeed, demythologizing is a task parallel to that performed by Paul and Luther in their doctrine of justification by faith alone, without the works of the law. More precisely, demythologizing is the radical application of the doctrine of justification by faith to the sphere of knowledge and thought. Like the doctrine of justification, demythologizing destroys every longing for security. There is no difference between security based on good works and security built on objectifying knowledge. The man who desires to believe in God must know that he has nothing at his own disposal on which to build this faith, that he is, so to speak, in a vacuum. He who abandons every form of security shall find the true security. End quote. Biblical man, who is not in both men's vacuum, believes that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 1. God, as the only security, is never abandoned by biblical man. But Boltman's man finds his security in himself. God and the unseen beyond provide him with an insurance policy and prevent man from collapsing into meaninglessness, or so Boltman hopes. His God and man are really one. Quote, the question of God and the question of myself are identical. End quote. This is not pantheism. Boltman's God is not real enough for that. Boltman's God is a limiting concept. Barth and Boltman do not rescue knowledge. They do not give us an authoritative and infallible word. Rather, in their views, God is dissolved, and man is left in a void. All views which deny the sovereign God lead to what Cornelius Van Til has so aptly described as an integration into the void. The third possible view is that only God speaks authoritatively and creatively, whereas man speaks analogically. Man thinks God's thoughts after him. God determines man, eternity, time. Man's role is to do God's will, to understand all things in the terms of the word of God. It does not destroy history to make eternity determinative. As Reinhold Niebuhr claimed, any more than our inability to walk up the side of a wall destroys our ability to walk. Man is not God. He is God's vice regent. Called to obey God and to work out the implications of the image of God in that obedience. Van Til has spoken to the kinetic wish that there be no God. Instead of yielding to the kinetic wish for the death of God, we work off the premise of the absolute God in his inscriptured word. The kinetic wish seeks to eliminate God, and instead it eliminates meaning and man. Man dissolves himself into the void of meaninglessness wherever he seeks to dissolve God. Those whose theology is informed by the second approach do not preach a biblical doctrine of salvation. They preach psychology or self-salvation. Those who hold to the sovereign and triune God of Scripture have the sure and infallible word of God to proclaim. It is the word upon which all words must be founded. Section 11. The Word of Dominion Van Til has described very clearly the basic issue and area of conflict between biblical and modern thought. Quote, that issue may be stated simply and comprehensively by saying that in the Christian view of things, it is the self-contained God who is the final point of reference, while in the case of the modern view, it is the would-be self-contained man who is the final point of reference in all interpretation. For the Christian, facts are what they are, in the last analysis, by virtue of the place that they take in the plan of God. End quote. Man's thinking, however abstract, has a personal frame of reference, Thus, whatever conclusions man may come to with respect to the cosmos and life, 
It is one by which a person is the ultimate point of reference. Van Til has shown us plainly the implications of this. Quote, In the last analysis, every theology or philosophy is personalistic. Everything impersonal must be brought into relationship with an ultimate personal point of reference. Orthodoxy takes the self-contained ontological trinity to be this point of reference. The only alternative to this is to make man himself the final point of reference. End quote. In order to maintain himself as the ultimate point of reference, fallen man must deny the word of God. For God to speak in an, an infallible word means that God is the ultimate point of reference and the ultimate person and authority. For man to have the freedom to be that authority and point of reference means that of necessity the infallible word of God must be either openly denied or its authority nullified by reinterpretation. The word of dominion must be preserved for man. Van Til has described the marks of this fallen man, the covenant breaker, and champion of man's word as against God's word. First, this would-be autonomous man, quote, thinks of himself as the ultimate judge of what can or cannot be, end quote. As he interprets facts or events, he allows no other word to interpret, govern, or predict history. Second, this lawless man denies that God, if he exists, can control and determine any and all phenomena. There can be no word of authority, dominion, or predestination from God. Third, it is held that, quote, man's thought is, in the final analysis, absolutely original, end quote. If there is any determination or interpretation in history, it is by man. Fourth, quote, The facts of man's environment are not created or controlled by the providence of God. They are brute facts, uninterpreted and ultimately irrational. The universe is a chance-controlled universe. It is a wholly open universe. Yet, at the same time, it is a closed universe. It is so in this sense. It cannot be what Christ says it is, namely, created, governed, and redeemed by him. In this one respect, the cosmos is closed. There could be no such God as the Bible reveals. This is the universal negative of the open-minded men of philosophy and science. End quote. Fallen man strips God from the universe and denudes it of law and meaning in order to be free to play God therein and to issue his own law and meaning. Man can speak only the word of dominion in an empty universe, a cosmos awaiting man's spirit to move over it and to provide it with form and meaning. Man, therefore, wills that the cosmos be a chaos so that its order will become the product of his, his own life-breathing word. Man does not approach reality in any spirit of neutrality. He approaches it either as God's covenant-keeping man or as a covenant-breaking man whose will it is to be his own God. There is thus inescapable conflict as to who speaks the word of dominion, the infallible word which is the ultimate point of reference. Van Til has written, quote, in saving us from sin, Christ saves us unto his service. Through the salvation that is ours in Christ by the Spirit, we take up anew the cultural mandate that was given man at the onset of history. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we want now to do all to the glory of God. The cultural mandate is to be fulfilled in our handling of the facts or events of our environment. Man must subdue to the service of Christ the earth and all that is therein. As the Christian constantly does so, he is constantly conscious of the fact that he is working on God's estate. He is not himself the owner of anything, least of all himself. He is the bondservant of God through Christ. Therein lies his freedom. 
Those who still think of themselves it's as owners of themselves and think of the world as a grab bag cannot properly evaluate the situation as it really is. Unbeknown to them, they too are working on God's estate. End quote. As usual, Van Til puts his finger clearly on the basic point. Man was created for God's service, to be his priest, prophet, and king to make of this earth God's developed and glorious kingdom. This calling is basic to man's nature. Fallen man does not abandon this calling. Instead, he seeks to convert it to his own perverse goal, to establish the kingdom of man with man as God and as the ultimate point of reference. The beginning of that revolt is the question, Yea, hath God said? Genesis 3.1 The authoritative and infallible word, the word of dominion, the tempter held, is not from God but from the creature. The task of exercising dominion and subduing the earth will be made easier, he held, if man begins by denying God's word and asserting his own word as the word of knowledge and the word of dominion. By reserving the tree of knowledge to himself, God reserved dominion to himself. God declared that thereby that the interpretation of facts and the moral character of all things was determined by his word. God's word is the word of dominion because his is the creative word. Having made all things, he has established the character, meaning, and purpose of all things. Good and evil are determined by his being and purpose, so that the ultimate point of reference in all things is God and his word, the binding word and the word of dominion. The tempter's belief was and is that the creature, in order to fulfill his calling to dominion, must exercise it independently. For example, that the image of God in man requires man to be God. Man must therefore become his own source of the word of dominion. Man must declare that things are good and evil insofar as they serve or do not serve man's purpose and glory. Man must begin the construction of his true kingdom, the kingdom of man, by declaring that he himself is the tree of knowledge, the source of the word of dominion. It is not the triune God out of whom the river of life proceeds and who is the source of the tree of knowledge, Revelation 22, 1 and 2, but man himself. Note that Van Til points out, quote, in saving us from sin, Christ saves us unto his service. End quote. Armenian salvation serves fallen men. It frees him, supposedly, from the consequence of the fall to pursue his own independent way in building the kingdom of man. But salvation is not merely fire insurance, and preaching which stresses heaven and hell as motives for salvation is clearly humanistic and serves the interests of fallen man. It is worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Romans 1.25. The call to salvation is a word of command from the sovereign God to cease from our self-service and self-worship and to serve and worship him. It is the word of dominion which rescues us from the evil and anarchy of the kingdom of man to the service of the kingdom of God. Thus, wherever this creation mandate or cultural mandate is ignored in preaching and in the plan of salvation, it should not surprise us that the infallible word is subtly replaced or altered into the word of man. Fire insurance establishes no responsibility. As a result, while Harold Linsell's very able and conscientious defense of the infallible word is to be commended, the history he recounts should not surprise us. Men whose idea of salvation is a self-serving one will soon have only a self-serving word. They can tolerate no other word. This is exactly what we see. If the world is not to be viewed as God's kingdom, God has no dominion, word, and law for it then man's dominion word is the answer. If there is no dominion word of sovereign grace in salvation, then there is no dominion word for any realm. Section 12, 
the word of flux. The infallible word for humanism cannot be an unchanging word. It is an essential aspect of the new faith that the infallible word must be a changing word, the word of flux. This faith was very early formulated in the United States by Octavius Brooks Frothingham, 1822-1895, a champion of the religion of humanity. Frothingham declared, quote, The interior spirit of any age is the spirit of God, and no faith can be living that has that spirit against it. No church can be strong except in that alliance. The life of the time appoints the creed of the time and modifies the establishment of the time. End quote. Frothingham held that, first, the true God is humanity, and his spirit is, quote, the interior spirit of any age, end quote. This means that, like Rousseau's general will, the spirit of the age is the voice of God, vox populi, vox dei. For Frothingham, humanity is in essence one and has but one life. This one life is the common pulse of any age, and to be alienated from humanity, to have no share in the common vitality, is death. Third, this infallible word is exclusively a contemporary word, infallible for the present, and no more. Every new moment creates its own creed of the time, and reorders life in terms of that infallible spirit of the age, but it cannot bind the future which has its own voice and creed. Fourth, each new word must modify the establishment of the time. Church, state, family, school, and everything else must be changed continuously in terms of this infallible word. In one form or another, this faith confronts us on all sides in the modern age. John Dewey, for example, denied the validity of any faith which accepted a body of intellectual propositions on the authority of revelation from on high. Any formal, unchanging creed was for him untenable. Faith for him was a tendency toward action. To adhere to any body of doctrine based on an external authority was for Dewey a, quote, distrust in the power of experience to provide, in its own ongoing movement, the needed principles of belief in action, end quote. To look to something external to man and his experience for authority was anathema to Dewey's dogmatic position. Instead, he held, quote, Faith in its newer sense signifies that experience itself is the sole ultimate authority. End quote. This deification of man's private and collective experiences has led in our time to a new dogmatism. Parents, teachers, and youth reject any reasoning, preaching, or stand which does not give priority to experience. They declare to those who disagree, You don't know anything about life because you haven't experienced this or that. Women declare that no man can condemn abortion because men do not experience childbirth. Homosexuals insist that people who condemn homosexuality have no right to do so until they rid themselves of their hang-ups and undergo the experience without prejudice, for example, favorably. They supposedly have no right to judge. I heard a prominent theologian declare that we could condemn no sin unless we too had experienced it. The standard thus is experience. For Dewey, any faith based on the supernatural was a philosophy of escape, and, quote, philosophies of escape have also been philosophies of compensation for the ills and sufferings of the experienced world, end quote. Dewey's great indictment of the Bible as God's revealed and infallible word is that it is a supernatural word, quote, 
and the supernatural signifies precisely that which lies beyond experience, end quote. Experience is Dewey's yardstick. In terms of experience, he rejects moral codes based on religious supernaturalism. They are for him meaningless because they lack the infallible vocabulary of experience. Quote, Contrast with such ideas of religious supernaturalism, deeply embedded in all Western culture, gives the philosophy of faith in experience a definite and profound meaning, end quote. If your eyes and mind fail to light up in terms of this definite and profound meaning of the philosophy of faith in experience, it is clear that you have not shared Dewey's own religious experience and mystical trust. How is it, quote, now possible to put trust in the possibilities of experience itself, end quote? Dewey is inviting us to come to the altar of humanistic religion, and his altar call is a simple one. Quote, the answer to this question supplies the content of a philosophy of experience. There are traits of present experience which were unknown and unpossessed when the ruling beliefs of the past were developed. Experience now owns as a part of itself scientific methods of discovery and test. It is marked by ability to create techniques and technologies, that is, arts which arrange and utilize all sorts of conditions and energies, physical and human. These new possessions give experience and its potentialities a radically new meaning. End quote. Today, Dewey's faith in scientific experience is less well received. The anti technological temper of humanism in the 1970s rejected Dewey's trust in science but it has by no means altered or dropped his faith in experience as ultimate. It has simply given a primitivistic view to experience and has stressed raw, unpremediated experience rather than scientific experience. Dewey's philosophy tended to require this shift. The thrust of Dewey's faith was hostility to any idea of fixity or law outside of man. Change he saw as the essence of experience. Valid experience meant a total commitment to unprincipled change, for example, change ungoverned by any word or standard external to man and his experience. Change was feared, Dewey held, because it was seen as, quote, the cause of disorder, chaos, and anarchy. One chief reason for the appeal to something beyond experience was the fact that experience is always in such flux that men had to seek stability and peace outside of it, end quote. For Dewey, it was wrong to, quote, search for the meaning of life and the purpose of the universe. Men who look for a single purport and a single end either frame an idea of them according to their private desires and traditions, or else, not finding any such single unity, give up in despair and conclude that there is no genuine meaning and value in any of life's episodes, end quote. This quest for a universe of meaning must be replaced with a purely humanistic and experienced, quote, plurality of interconnected meanings and purposes, end quote. At this point, an ironic fact takes over in Dewey's thought. Dewey was very much a part of the modern intellectual tradition and its contempt for the bourgeoisie. The term bourgeoisie has become so great a catch-all for liberal and radical anathemas and spites that its definition is almost impossible. However, it does mean, in essence, an exploitative middle class, prizing its own experience of freedom and holding a materialistic outlook. Only one aspect of the older bourgeoisie is missing from this description, its productivity, something detested by the liberal tradition. However, this productivity apart, nothing more nearly approximates the liberal caricature of the bourgeoisie 
than these intellectuals themselves, their children, John Dewey, and the products of his educational philosophy. We live today in the world of the humanistic bourgeoisie, a generation for whom its own experience is ultimate and for whom self-satisfaction goes hand in hand with a contempt for everything that challenges self-satisfaction. It must be noted that Dewey hoped that experiential man would combine knowledge and social needs with his life of experience. Quote, I would suggest that the future of religion is connected with the possibility of developing a faith in the possibilities of human experience and human relationships that will create a vital sense of the solidarity of human interests and inspire action to make that sense a reality. End quote. This represents a radically unrealistic hope and a senseless confidence. Having made experience ultimate, how could Dewey expect man, who thereby renounced God, to give way to his neighbor? If God cannot take priority over our experience, how can another man? If experience itself is the sole ultimate authority, and men are taught so, how will they then be persuaded to give way to society in the state? Dewey tried to depreciate the individual and his consciousness. He tried to make the true domain of experience the collective experience of the great society. However, having made the individual the new ultimate, he could not then persuade him to surrender his ultimacy to the state, a more jealous God than the God of Scripture. Having made man's experience ultimate, he was asking the new God, man, either to commit suicide or, at the very least, to castrate himself. The results have been very different. According to the old Greek myth, the god Uranus was castrated by his son Cronus. Cronus was later in turn dethroned by his own son Zeus, each god being his own law in Greek humanism, which was in turn subject to overthrow of the next moment in time and its new god. The same is true of the world of John Dewey and of all humanists. Sartre was set aside as the voice of yesterday by the generation he instructed, and Dewey's generation despised the pedestrian and old-fashioned sense of order and responsibility Dewey imbibed from his Christian heritage. When men deify themselves in their experience, they forget that they thereby provide the intellectual apparatus for a newer God to destroy them in the name of flux, in the name of the newer infallible word of the moment, themselves. The result is the perpetual war of the false gods, a war between the generations and a war within the generation. Section 13. The Word and History The continuing effect of Platonism and Neoplatonism on the Church has had a deadly consequence on its view of Scripture. In this view, there are two substances of diverse natures which make up reality, ideas, or spirit, mind, form, or soul, and matter. These two are in an uneasy union in history. In varying degrees, thinkers in this tradition see spirit or ideas as basic, higher, and superior, and matter as lower and inferior. For some theologians in the Thomistic and Armenian traditions, the fall affected man's body, not his mind, so that whatever error may occur in the mind is a product of the body and its corrupting influence. Such a view is clearly hostile to Scripture, which sees man as a unity totally God's creation. Man, instead of being of two or three substances, is of one only, namely, created being. The difference is not between spirit, God, and in part man, and matter, but between the uncreated being of God and the created being of man in the universe. Man's problem, therefore, is not matter, his body, and materialistic concerns, but sin, his rebellion against God and his law. 
Because of the Greek influence on the thought of the church, there was a depreciation of history. If it is the realm of the spirit which is basic, then a concern for the world of matter represents a lower and less spiritual, and hence less worthy, concern. It is a popular, humanistic myth to declare that history began with the Greeks and with Herodotus. On the contrary, it began with Scripture and in Israel. The Greek historical writings are, in essence, anti-historical. They represent in embryo what later became explicit in Hegel, the imposition of an idea on history. The idea does not belong to history any more than spirit belongs to matter. It makes something out of history. In Herodotus's case, we miss the point of his books if we fail to see that they are written against time and history. He began Book One, Clio, with the words, quote, This is a publication of the researches of Herodotus of Halicarnassus, in order that the actions of man may not be effaced by time. End quote. Biblical history, however, sees the world and time as God's creation, and as very good. Genesis one thirty one. The problem is not time or matter, but sin which alters man's moral nature. Time and history are intended by God to be the arena wherein covenant man exercises dominion, subdues the earth, and extends the kingdom of God into every realm of life and thought. Jesus Christ restores man to this calling. Time and history do not efface the actions of man, as Herodotus held, but, to the contrary, give opportunity and scope for the actions of godly men to manifest the glory of God's rule and realm by means of faith and obedience to God's law. The church very early became a prodigal son. However, preferring the husks of Greek philosophy to the riches of the father's house, the implications of adopting the Greek view of mind and body were enormous for biblical study and interpretation. In Father Vater's words, quote, It was all too easy to press the analogy to the conclusion that the literal meaning of a text, the flesh, was not only not the reality of the scripture, but might even be a hindrance or at best an irrelevance to its soul, the spiritual or allegorical sense that lay hidden beneath it. It is surely not by chance that where allegorism flourished, not only in practice, but as an ideal, such philosophy as existed to provide a framework for systematic thought was Platonist. Quote. Unfortunately, Vader falls prey to the same kind of thinking, such thinking is endemic to the church. Among fundamentalists, it means that the true meaning of the law is a spiritual and allegorical one, hidden in the colors of the tabernacle furnishings, the number of animals sacrificed, and so on. This is in line with Jerome's interpretation of Ecclesiastes. For Jerome, it was a counsel to asceticism, and thus a manual for those who chose to remain virgins. Mention of food and drink in Ecclesiastes, Jerome saw as referring to Christ's body and blood, Again, when, in the feeding of the multitude, Christ bade the hungry crowd to sit on the ground, Jerome saw this as a command to trample down the fleshly pleasures of the world. Wherever the material world is depreciated, such view of scripture will proliferate, since there is either no meaning, or only a limited meaning, to the material realm for such people. They will seek the true or higher meaning in a spiritual realm, in allegories, forced typologies, and the like. When My Institutes of Biblical Law was first published, more than a few churchmen held it to be a disaster, because it materialized what Christ had come supposedly to spiritualize. I was repeatedly told, by telephone and in person, that the Old Testament represents a lower and hence materialistic revelation and a plan of salvation, and hence the emphasis on law, whereas the New Testament gives us a spiritual and higher way than law, namely, 
faith and love, life in the Holy Spirit, in an antinomian sense. The Second Vatican Council gave us an interesting sight. Papal infallibility was not dropped, but biblical infallibility was shelved. The truth of Scripture, which is without error, was limited to whatever is for the sake of our salvation. This inerrant truth is not to be found in the Bible as such. In Vodder's words, quote, Moreover, as the relatio for the finished schema made clear, the biblical truth proclaimed by the Council to be free of error is not simply isolable in propositions and expressions. It is both the word and deed of God, the whole of salvation history, end quote. The word of God thus becomes a non-historical word. It is an existential word, an experience, a spiritual moment. Just as the church is for Vader, the continuation of the incarnation, so for him also the true word of God is a continuing spiritual experience. Quote, Is it not proper to think of biblical inspiration in this way, as continuing to reside in the belief and understanding of the communities of faith, perpetuated by the same spiritual life by which they live and following the natural laws and structures which the Spirit has assumed? If we may so think, then perhaps we have a final enunciation of what is meant by divine condescension and adoption of the words of man in the full context of the people of God. Vader is a modernist, and his words are an amazing witness to the pride of man. For modernism, the Incarnation is not a literal union of God and man, and the Bible is in no literal sense the written word of God. However, what is not true of Christ becomes true of the Church. It is the living, present Incarnation, a continuous Incarnation. Again, what is not true of the Bible is true of the communities of faith in whom, in the full context of the people of God, the inerrant word resides in their belief and understanding. For Vader, the final quality of Scripture is in this dynamic continuation of the word. Quote, the same principles may serve to justify the final quality that we would like to ascribe to inspiration, that is, what we have termed its permanent and dynamic character, responsible for the continued power that the word has to evoke response in the believer. Without denying the obvious once-for-allness involved in the literary fixation of the Bible, we must at the same time acknowledge that it is the continuous reinterpretation of the biblical word in the life of the believing community that constitutes it effectively God's word to man. By inspiration, we should understand not only the spiritual influence responsible for the Bible's origins, but also that which sustains it as a medium of speech." Such a view is in line with the existentialism of Barth and Tillich. It needs no sovereign and absolute God who speaks the necessary and infallible words. Rather, it cannot tolerate such a God. As a result, it rules such a God out of history in any necessary and determinative sense. History must be man's realm. Without God, however, history soon loses meaning. It becomes the world of brute factuality, of meaninglessness and purposeless events. Preaching becomes psychological in content, geared to the existentialist needs rather than to the will of God. It therefore disposes of God in history and is gradually forced into the private universe of man's mind. There, in that narrow confine, the infallible word of the new God speaks to the echo chambers of empty man. The Shepherd of Hermas is a very poor guide to scripture, but this early writing from the church, dating perhaps before A.D. 140, still reflects an interesting view of Christ. Quote, this great tree which covers plains and mountains and all the earth is the law of God, which was given to all the world. And this law is the Son of God, 
who has been preached to the ends of the earth, end quote. Because the Bible is the infallible word of God, it sets forth the righteousness of God in his law. Because Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he is also the law of God in person. If we deny God, then we deny the word, the law, and the incarnation. There is then no literal, very word of God in history, nor for history. God being silent, man therefore speaks. In his speaking, man may mask his nakedness and clothe himself in scripture, but it is still man who speaks, and his word is nothing. Section 14. The Infallible Word. Dr. Cornelius Van Til has called attention to the fact that Jesus Christ used the terms law and scripture as synonymous. Citing Psalm 82.6, our Lord called it law. Quote, this proves that the term law was, for Jesus' purpose, identical with Scripture as a whole. And of this law, or Scripture, Jesus then says that it cannot be broken. It is therefore the final court of appeal. End quote. If God be God, then his every word is of necessity law, because his every word is the authoritative and ultimate word. There is no word, law, power, or standard beyond God by means of which God and his word can be judged. Van Til makes this clear in the course of his discussion of the righteousness of God. Quote, With the righteousness of God, we signify the self-consistency of the divine being. God is a law unto himself. He is the absolute self-existent personality and therefore, at the same time, absolute law. God does not have a law, but is law. His self-conscious activity regards with absolute complacency the eternal rightness of relationship between the various aspects of multiplicity that are found with the divine being. He cannot and does not tolerate any subordination of any one aspect of his being to any other aspect of his being. The attributes and the persons of God are all on a par." End quote. It is therefore destructive of the biblical doctrine of God to oppose or exalt one aspect of God over or against another. We cannot oppose grace and law. Men may do so, but in God's being, they are in unity and not in subordination to one another. Similarly, in God's being, love and justice are not contraries, but equal aspects of his being, and are in essential unity. To say, God is love, 1 John 4, 8, is scriptural. But it denies scripture if we mean, therefore, that in God is love is more basic than law, justice, jealousy, wrath, grace, or any other attribute of God's being. Thus, when Scripture contrasts any of these terms, it either has reference to man's use of them or to man's relationship to them under God's economy. Van Til illustrates this by reference to 2 Corinthians 3.6. Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, and the Spirit giveth life. The contrast here is not between grace and law, nor a materialistic dispensation versus a spiritual one. The letter, as spoken of by Paul, refers not to Scripture as a whole, but refers to the ministration of condemnation, that is, to the Pharisaic externalism. Thus, quote, the contention that the Bible was never meant to be taken as a book that should be interpreted literally is invalid, end quote. The misuse of Scripture condemned by Paul was not a faithful obedience to the literal meaning of Scripture, but a reinterpretation of that meaning in terms of man's word, will, and thought. We must, on the contrary, quote, make Scripture the standard of our thinking and not our thinking the standard of Scripture, end quote. It is to the advantage of apostate man to deny or wrongly divide the word of God. 
If the Bible is reduced to a non-literal meaning and made anything other than the very word of God, the result is a very different kind of God. God then has no sure and certain word because God himself is an uncertain and unrealized being. Those who pretend to exalt God by declaring him to be unknowable, and hence unnameable, are thereby undermining the deity of God. Greek philosophy, for example, assumed the utter unknowability of God. As Van Til observes, quote, An apostate man has every reason for teaching the unnameability of God. If God is unnameable, then he cannot name anything in the world. Only if God is unknowable can man think of his own knowledge as autonomous. End quote. God can be named, but not by man. For man to name God means that man's autonomous mind establishes the categories of definition. The definitive and ultimate word is then the word of man. For man to define God would mean that man would then classify God in relationship to himself and would understand and judge God, as well as to name him, in terms of man's infallible word. This is at the heart of the evil of idolatry. Some forms of idolatry seem superficially examined, to be very noble. Some, in fact, show the influence of biblical thought. At heart, however, idolatry defines God whether by word, graven image, picture, or philosophic thought in terms of man's autonomous mind and man's defining and creative word. The people of Israel wanted, in the person of Moses, a definition of God. What was his name? By this they meant a definition of God in terms of man's requirements and being. God refused to so name himself. In terms of man, he is beyond definition because he is not to be defined by anything external to himself as a criterion over himself, but in terms of his own being. Scripture defines man in terms of the image of God. Hence, apostate man is fallen man. He has fallen from God's norm. Of a contemptible sinner, we say, he's not much of a man because man is not defined by his own existence. We cannot name, define, or know God in terms of anything external to himself, and hence we cannot judge God, because God and his word are the criterion of all judgment. We can truly say of a man, he's not much of a man, but we can never still speak of God, that he is not much of a God. As a result, God answered Moses, not as Israel would have wished, but by declaring himself to be God. That was his name, he who is, the self-existent one. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name for ever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. Exodus three fourteen and 15. This means, first, that man cannot name or define God. God names himself, I am that I am. Where man does any naming, as Adam was required to do in Eden, Genesis 2, 19 and 20, it is either as a covenant keeper, working to understand the world under God and in terms of God's purpose as creator, or as a covenant breaker, seeking to establish the meaning of creation in terms of man's autonomous and ultimate word, Genesis 3, 5. Second, God defines himself by his self-revelation. The naming, defining, knowing word is thus the word of God. Man's word, when autonomous in intent, is unable to create reality or impose its own determinative meaning on reality. All things having been made by God, 
serve and obey His word and purpose. Third, this means that Scripture is the necessary word. God makes Himself knowable and all creation knowable by means of His sovereign and infallible word. God's word is the word of salvation, but it is also the word of knowledge, basic to epistemology. It is the word of law, love, wrath, grace, justice, judgment, and more. It is the word which establishes the meaning of life, time, and history. Fourth, God's word is the unchanging word. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8 He declares, For I am the Lord, I change not. Malachi 3.6 He is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. As he was then, he is now and forever. This is my name forever. His word is thus the infallible word, because he is the absolute and omnipotent God whose every word is truth. Fifth, God then made clear to Moses that he did not answer to Moses or to Israel. They answered to him. Hence, Moses had to go at God's command, and Israel had to stand up to Pharaoh in terms of God's requirement that Israel must serve God, not Pharaoh. Exodus 3:16-20. Israel could serve neither Pharaoh nor itself. It must serve the Lord. And if Pharaoh or Israel stood in God's way, he would stretch out his hand and smite him. This is no less true today. The scripture is not a problem to be resolved by man, nor a mere subject for research and speculation. It is God's infallible command word. We either obey it or are condemned by it. Section 15. Moloch, Man, and the Word of God. As we have seen, every philosophy has either explicitly or implicitly an infallible word. This infallible word is in some sense man's word. Genesis 3.5 man as the pretended god of creation. This claim to infallibility is masked behind scientific and philosophical jargon, but it is still there. As Termand notes with respect to communism, quote, in order not to fall into utter ludicrousness, communism conceals its infallibility behind the inviolability of the laws of history and the class struggle, of which it calls itself the sole binding discoverer and interpreter, end quote. Implicit claims to infallibility are as old as history and go back to the fall of man. The rabbis of old made the voice of the rabbi the voice of God and gave it priority over scripture, for example, over the Torah. Thus we read in Erubim 21b, the declaration, quote, My son, be more careful in the observance of the words of the scribes than in the words of the Torah, for in the laws of the Torah there are positive and negative precepts, and the penalties vary. But as to the laws of the scribes, whoever transgresses any of the enactments of the scribes incurs the penalty of death, end quote. In terms of this principle to be a rabbi and have a seat on the Sanhedrin required a particularly subtle mind and legal ability. Rab Judah is cited as declaring, quote, None is to be given a seat on the Sanhedrin unless he is able to prove the cleanness of a reptile from biblical texts, end quote. Such methods of judgment are very much with us in our contemporary American courts. We have in the same treaties an example of this use of law in dealing with the law of giving one's seed to Moloch. The knowledge of the meaning of this law of Leviticus 18.21 is excellent. Moloch means king, Melech. The vowels of the word bosheth, shame, are introduced to make Melech into Molech, or Moloch. The Talmud states, quote, our Hanina B. Antigonus said, Why did the Torah employ the word Moloch? 
to teach that the same law applies to whatever they proclaimed as their king, even a pebble or a splinter, end quote. Whatever a man makes king or lord over himself is a Moloch. This can be an idol, the state and its ruler or king, or himself. Modern statism is clearly a form of Moloch worship, and state schools receive the sacrifice of children from parents who are lawbreakers before God. However, like modern churchmen, the rabbis could find legitimate grounds for breaking the law while retaining their innocence through legal technicalities. Thus we are told, quote, He who gives of this seed to Molech incurs no punishment unless he delivers it to Molech and causes it to pass through the fire. If he gave it to Molech but did not cause it to pass through the fire or the reverse, he incurs no penalty unless he does both, end quote. We can understand why our Lord condemned all such interpretations, declaring, Full well ye reject or frustrate the commands of God, that ye may keep your own tradition, Mark 7, 9. The purpose of all this, from ancient times to present, with rabbis, judges, communists, theologians, and pastors, is to substitute man's word for God's word. The goal is action in history, the development of the kingdom of man rather than the kingdom of God. The word of God is frustrated, and rejected by any teaching or interpretation which does not lead to the action required by God. Whether or not we profess, as did these rabbis, the scriptures to be God's infallible word is meaningless. If, with our interpretation, teaching, and preaching, we frustrate or reject the action commanded by God. Thus, the net result is the same. Whether we frustrate God's word in the life of man by means of modernism, dispensationalism, or antinomianism, we have today over 50 million adults in the U.S. who profess to believe in the Bible from cover to cover. They claim to believe every word of it and obey very little of it, on supposedly good evangelical grounds. The good news of the gospel now is interpreted to mean that God does not mean what he says. But Williams is right, quote, A man cannot reject any word of God without in principle rejecting every word of God, end quote. We must therefore say that most Churchmen today have in principle rejected every word of God. Their reasons are as false and godless as those of the ancient rabbis. Hillel set aside the law of the Sabbath year by means of a legal fiction. A certified agreement that the creditor could claim his due was substituted for the remission of debt and the law of return in the, in the Jubilee year. The same kind of legal fiction is employed by churchmen today in the name of Christ. The infallible word of God is not an abstract or a theoretical word. It is com God's commanding word. It requires us to believe and obey him and his word. It declares to covenant man, this do and ye shall live, Deuteronomy 8.1. The word is given, not that man might have fire insurance, nor, though it is the word of salvation, is it given primarily for man's salvation, but rather that God's purposes be fulfilled or put into force. All the priorities of Scripture have to do with God and His kingdom. We are to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and only then will our own needs be met by God. Matthew 6.33 These priorities must govern our lives and our prayers, as the Lord's Prayer makes clear, for it begins and ends with God's kingdom. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Matthew 6, 9-10 through 10 and 13. If the word of God does not lead us to faith, prayer, and action in terms of these priorities, then, 
Like the rabbis of old, we are using the word of God to mask another word, our own word. We may profess to believe the infallible word of God, but it is our own infallible word which lurks behind the facade of faith. The doctrine of the infallible word is thus not simply an ecclesiastical doctrine. It is basic to life. To limit the scripture to the role of a church book is to deny it and then to substitute man's word as law for everyday life. The infallible word is a licensing word. It silences the pretensions of man and summons men and nations to hear God's word and then to speak, act, and govern in terms of it. God declares through Isaiah, Keep silence before me, O islands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near. Let them speak. Let us come near together to judgment. Isaiah 41, 1. When the Lord speaks, let all the earth keep silence before him. Habakkuk 2, 20. Because his word alone is the infallible and governing word, the word of truth. Therefore, be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord. Zechariah 2.13 His word is the determining word. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Isaiah 55.11 Such a word cannot be shelved. Man can be, have, and will be shelved by the judgments of God. But his word endures and stands in judgment over them. Because the word of God is the word of life, it will lead either to faith and action or to judgment and death. The infallibility of scripture is thus more than an academic question. At heart is the question, who is God, man or his creator? And who shall issue the command word for the whole of life, thought and action, God or man? It is an order to the false rabbis in the pulpits and the would-be gods in pews and podiums to abdicate for God will be God. Let Moloch man beware. Section 16. Infallibility and the World of Faith. In April 7, 1967, issue of Time magazine, an article on East Germany spoke of the heir apparent to the communist dictator of East Germany in these words, quote, Ulbricht obviously cannot last forever as East Germany's leader. His heir apparent is a pretty good copy of the original. He is Erich Honecker, 54, a communist since his youth, whose philosophy is more or less summed up in two of his more famous statements, The Party Has Never Erred, and the only book worth reading is Stalin's History of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, end quote. For a time, I carried that clipping with me in my travels, citing it to clergymen and seminarians in conversations. The constant reaction was one of indifference. No relationship between Honecker's faith in the infallibility of the Communist Party and the theological doctrine of infallibility was seen by any. I became thereby freshly aware of the extent and depth of our saturation with the world of Kant, Barth, and Niebuhr. In this perspective, the world has two kinds of factuality. On the one hand, there is the realm of brute factuality in the physical and historical world, and, on the other, the realm of faith myth and ideas, where facts are facts of faith, not of history. For such people, infallibility, like the virgin birth and the resurrection, is a fact of faith, not of history. These two realms of faith and history have a meeting point, after Descartes, in the autonomous mind of man. The mind of man is the controlling and creative agent which gives reality to both realms, and the reality of these two different worlds exists in the mind of man, which alone give both of them reality and meaning. The roots of this concept are older than Kant and Descartes. 
They go back at least to the ancient Greeks and their concept of two alien substances, matter and ideas. The two substances have become more and more separated since then, so that the realm of ideas, or the world of faith, now touches only the realm of matter in the mind of man. As a result, the theological mind has isolated theology more and more from the world of matter and action into the world of faith. Marxism seeks the imposition of the realm of ideas onto the world of matter. It seeks to remake the world of matter, the kingdom of necessity, into the kingdom of freedom, a realm ruled by the idea. Except where influenced by Marxism, however, modern theology seeks to separate itself from the kingdom of necessity and to develop in purity the kingdom of freedom or of faith. A major wing of modern theology is fundamentalism, which is Armenian or Neo-Thomist in theology and rationalistic in apologetics. Its answer is the rapture, the escape into the world or realm of faith, and then the supernatural union of the two hostile realms in the millennium. Because the two realms are seen as naturally alien, the relationship between the two requires some special act. For the fundamentalists, it is the second coming alone which can bridge the gap between faith and history. A supernatural act is required. For the Barthians and others, there is no supernatural act of God, but there is a similar act in the mind of man whereby the two alien worlds, the irreconcilables, meet by the will and grace of autonomous man. For this reason, Honecker's statement does not interest the clergy. They do not live in a unified creation, but in a metaphysically rather than morally divided world. They do not see God's word and creative will as the inescapable factor in every area of life, so that no fact or interpretation can exist outside of God. No idea or fact exists apart from the triune God. Man, by his desire to be his own God, determining good and evil for himself, Genesis 3.5, does not create a new realm of being. He does not add a single metaphysical fact or idea to creation. Man's attempt is a moral fact. It is an immoral act of rebellion against his creator, the covenant God. In that rebellion, man misuses God's creation, including himself. Man changed the truth of God into a lie, Romans 1.25. They do not create new truths or new facts. They attempt rather to pervert God's creation into a witness for their denial of the Creator. Having denied the sovereign and triune God, and having denied that man must live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, Matthew 4.4, 4, they insist that man's hope is in man himself, and the word of man. Hence, they declare, the party has never erred, that man is infallible, power to the people, and much, much more in the same vein. The issue is the word of God, or the word of man. Whose word shall prevail? If we limit the word of God to the realm of faith, we have denied it. The word of God is his infallible word and law for the whole of creation, for every man. His word is the binding word for every realm, and his law governs all things. Any man who attempts to build a theology on any other foundation than the sovereign and triune God, whose word governs all of creation, is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Luke 6, 49.